Well, we've been working through maps. We've been on four maps, and we come to the very last one today, and we go to Paul's missionary journeys over here. I'm going to bring it down um, so we can interact with it a little better. And um, so we started off way over here, three to 4,000 years ago with Abram, Abraham, going from his homeland and going all the way into the promised land and getting promised to become the father of a great nation. And then we went to Moses around 1500, 1600 BC and the Exodus and they come back into the promised land. And then it got all the colors going because now in the thousand years, you know, 1000 BC down to about 587 or so forth, they all get dragged off into exile. And so I'm just going to skip the Gospels and Jesus and all of that. That's for another time. I'll let, <coughs> sorry, Martin and Garen handle it. And we're just going to go jump right to Paul's three missionary journeys, okay, in the first century AD. So I have to say, I've, I've liked doing these maps. I think I'm going to bring in some more. So hopefully, uh, give me some feedback and let me know if you like the maps thing. I can helps kind of bring everything together and, you know, it's a different way as opposed to just a bunch of dates and names and um, kind of puts a little bit of lines and colors to them, I hope. So um, let's get to this last map here then. So it's about 49 AD, 49, 48, 48, 49, 50 AD, okay? Now, remember that Jesus is crucified and raises again somewhere around 30 or 33 AD, depending on what scholar you're, you're talking to. So around 30 AD, and now it's about 50 AD. So it's about 20 years later, give or take a few years, right? The church is up and running. It's doing well. People are becoming Christians. Things are going along. And Jesus has risen. He has risen indeed. And the disciples are no longer called disciples. They are now called the apostles. And apostle means message bearer. So they are the message keepers, the message bearers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay? And uh, Saul, there's a man named Saul, not King Saul from, you know, a thousand years earlier on a map we do not have here during the Davidic uh, dynasty with David and all that, uh, just before that. But Saul, named after King Saul, is the zealous Pharisee who is not a Christian or a believer in Jesus, and he is persecuting the early church. And he is now at this point in 49 AD become a Christian and he becomes Paul, the Apostle Paul, the message bearer, who is brilliant. He's upper class, by the way. He's an expert in the Torah and he is a Roman citizen by birth because his father purchased, as a Jew, Roman citizenship. So he has all sorts of graces like that. And what is, remains the same from when he was Saul is that he is still <clears throat> this completely passionate, sold out, all in, crazy zealot for whatever is, is, is possessing him at the time. And what's possessing him now and for the rest of his life is Jesus. So we turn to this letter of Paul. And the church, and I'm going to read to you from, uh, we're going to put it on the screen, uh, Galatians. But let me get there, because you're like, Galatians. Now, what city is that? Okay, so here we are. We're, here's Jerusalem. Here's the promised land. we got all these missionary journeys all over the place. So, like, so here's Antioch. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Here's Galatia. Gal no, wait, where's Galatian? Isn't there a city? Because 
here's Corinth, and here's Thessalonica, and Philippi, and Ephesus, and they all got like letters from Paul written from him to these cities. There is no town of Galatia. It's a region. And there's northern, and there's southern, and you have these towns. Here's Antioch. And don't you hate it when people just name their town after somebody else for size Nevada? Just saying. Milan, you know, Missouri. Do we have any original names of cities in this? Okay. I, I got a thing when I'm driving to Missouri and I see Milan. Isn't that Milan? <laughs> Versailles? Nevada? I don't know. Anyway, okay, I'm off of that now. So they, this one's called Antioch and Pisidia. Don't confuse the two. Getting there. All right? So it's a region. So here we go. I'm reading to you. Paul's letter to that region in Galatia that he writes, okay? And it's the very first chapter, chapter 1, starting in verse 11. Here we go, Paul. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. Like, what? I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Okay, He is making a big statement. He is just as passionate as he always is. And Paul here is saying like, I was not taught this gospel that I'm sharing, that I'm a message bearer of. It came to me directly from Jesus. Now, you'd have to also know that Jesus was not one of the 12 disciples who traveled around with Jesus and walked all those dusty roads by the Sea of Galilee. He came later as one untimely born, as he says. Nonetheless, He encounters Jesus, right, on the Damascus Road, the big light, blinded for three days. That's his story. All right, verse 13. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Oh, yeah, they have. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Yep, that's what he was doing. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, the non-Jews. My immediate response was not to consult with any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles. That's Peter and all the rest of them before I was. But I went into Arabia and later to Damascus. Okay, uh, back to Matt, please, Everett. So here he goes. Here's Damascus in modern-day Syria. You know, amazingly enough, Damascus is still a modern-day city, right? Arabia is this region out here. It's not named so uh, in, on our map here, but it is in other biblical maps. So he goes away. Paul goes away after his conversion. Not down to Jerusalem. Okay, all right, verse 21, uh, wait, verse 18. Then after three years, after three years, uh, being out there in Damascus and, and Arabia and all that, Syria, basically, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas or Kephas or Peter or the rock because he's no longer Simon the fisherman. People are getting their names changed when they encounter Jesus, amen? And I stayed with Cephas for 15 days, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. <laughs> Verse 21. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, and I was personally known to the churches of Judea and there and that are, are in Jesus Christ, that are in Christ. 
They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praise God because of me. And so he says then that he goes to, uh, back to the map, please, that he goes then to, uh, here it is, yeah, Cilicia and Syria. See him here? And he says he goes there. So here's Antioch in the middle of that. And once again, that's a teaser because I'm going to talk about it in a second. So if Paul sounds like at this point that he's defending himself in court, like he's in the witness box or whatever, and he's defending himself, you've got it exactly right. He's actually following a four-part formula uh, for somebody who is making a legal defense of themselves. And he is legally, so to speak, in this letter, defending himself, saying like, the gospel I got is an authentic gospel. It came directly from Jesus. I received it from nobody. And I have a calling to go to the Gentiles. And we all praise God for that because that's us. (laughs) 2,000 years later. So he's defending himself. In a sense, Paul is using a map, so to speak, to state his case. He's saying where he went, what he did, and, and a little bit of who he was with, and mostly what he was not with. He, wasn't, he didn't go to Jerusalem or Judea, but instead he went to Arabia and Damascus. And then after three years, he goes to Jerusalem to meet with Peter, and he meets his, Jesus' brother James. And then Paul takes off for Syria and Cilicia. So he starts heading north. Now, Paul has a specific calling, so don't miss it. Galatians chapter 1, verse 16, there, right there where we were reading. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. No other apostle has this calling. There are 11, because Judas Iscariot hung himself. We have another death in the house this, day, this morning, besides the beheading of Goliath and then Paul being stoned nearly to death. So, Judas Iscariot, there's 11 left. They draw straws for Matthias. Let's not count him. I don't know why, I just don't feel like it. And Paul kind of joins in and completes the 12. Okay? Nobody else had a calling to go to the Gentiles. Not Peter, not any of them. They're all hanging out in Jerusalem and around there. Not Paul. He's being called to go elsewhere. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, let me, let's just ponder this for this moment, okay? That you and I, I'm up here and you're here and we are a church and we are Christians entirely because of that man, Paul, taking the gospel to all these places. Nearly 2,000 years later, We are here because of Paul's missionary journeys. It kind of blows your mind if you think about it. I mean, you know, you can get on Ancestry.com or whatever and pay your money or whatever and find out, you know, what your DNA says or something. But on the other hand, you could do the same thing, so to speak, although we can't because we don't know how it gets done. Like, where'd you hear the gospel? How'd you become a Christian? Well, they heard it from somebody and they heard it from somebody and they heard it from somebody and they heard it from somebody. All the way back. To Paul. Cool, huh? I think so. I kind of like that sort of thing. Now, Paul preaches this gospel that he says is the real legit thing. It is not a gospel of legalism and moral fundamentalism. He's done with being a Pharisee. But, and it, and it certainly, you know, we need to pay attention here because Christianity gets turned into moralism and fundamentalism and right and wrong and who's in and who's out. And, you know, if you commit this sin, if you get divorced and you can't be in the church, you know, and all this other stuff. He's not teaching that at all. 
He's teaching a gospel of forgiveness and love and reconciliation to God and to each other. Because of Paul, Christians before us, back in Paul's time, they broke down social classes, rich and poor, ate together, shared common things. Ethnicities who once hated each other had joined and come together at the foot of the cross. Think about it in our political day and around the world. People who hate each other came together because of the gospel that Paul preached. Amazing. And then let's just move forward. Did you know that medical care, that sort of compassion ministry that became modern medicine, that hospitals became are around because of Christianity? Did you know education began out of Christianity? Our concepts of modern day education, university, public education, public education came out of John Adams. I keep talking about John Adams because he's my favorite. Slavery ended because of Christianity. Christians advocated for workers' unions and getting rid of child labor. In short, everyone, my point is that because of Paul and this missionary journey and because of the flourishing of Europe and because Christianity blossomed during, for the next 2,000 years, there is no modern age without Christianity the way we understand it. And you may listen to whatever voice you want, secular or whatever, and all of our ideas about compassion and democracy and everything else all came out of this idea of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not done with this little rant here and this sort of a rabbit trail, so, you know, stick with me, right? Now, so for all of you who have kids who are off at college like I do, your kid that you're paying all this money for is being taught, this really gets cranky here for a second, is being taught by some grad student teaching assistant that Christianity was the worst thing that ever happened on the planet because it produced the Crusades and colonialism. Okay. When Christianity succumbs to power and money, it goes wrong. And how much of Christianity is that? A small part. It's not the entire thing of Christianity. All of Christianity is not about the Crusades and colonialism, as evil and bad as that was. It's a very small part. So let's not let the grad, grad assistant then paint the entire thing as Christianity is the worst thing that ever happened. Because actually the grad assistant can actually teach because of Christianity and education. And the ability to stand up and speak your mind came out of people who, who were Christians. And as contrast, if you'd like to see what you end up with with a world that is atheist and b- denies Christianity and this compassion and simply says everything is power, such as Nietzsche said, then you end up with the 20th century and tens of millions of people are slaughtered in the name of atheism. So let's not be too quick, graduate student teaching assistants, to discount Christianity. When Christianity stays strong to the cross, this gospel that Paul preached, 
It sets the captive free. It brings justice and it reconciles sworn enemies. And there is peace and human flourishing. Case in point, the year is 1994. And if you've never heard of it, it's the Rwandan genocide. The genocide in Rwanda. The Hutus, the Hutus slaughter the Tutsis. Four months, one million people are butchered in our lifetime. Do you remember this? It happened so fast and it was so unbelievable that the Western world didn't even know it hardly happened. A million deaths in four months. At the end of it, a year later, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is brought together by Christians who come into Rwanda and begin the long, long journey of reconciling, of reconciling murderers to, to victims and the families of victims. Solely based upon the gospel of forgiveness and reconciliation. To the extent that Hutu murderers actually become the fathers to orphan children whom they murdered their parents. All because of Jesus. I hope the grad student teaching assistant knew that. Or the fact that all the early colleges in America were started by the churches. Princeton, Harvard, William and Mary, that's the oldest one, St. John's, Yale, all of them are Christian. Okay, I'm done with that rant. Paul takes us on three missionary journeys. Each journey brought the gospel closer and closer to us. And we should be grateful. Paul's first missionary journey is the pink line. Here we go. We have the pink line. And it's going to start in Antioch. Not that Antioch. This Antioch right here in the area of northern Syria. And modern day Syria. And it's going to go to Cyprus. And then it's going to go up here to uh, Perga. And it's going to go up to the other Antioch. To Iconium. To Lystra. And to Derby, And then <clears throat> retrace back. And then back to Antioch. Okay? So this is really significant. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And so they all begin in Antioch. Why is Antioch so important? How come they didn't come out of Jerusalem? Well, because Jerusalem was a hotbed of revolt and controversy. And it was a, as it is even today in our modern times, Jerusalem is quartered up into all sorts of sects and sections and controversy and revolts. They were a pain in the backside to the Roman Empire. The Jews were in Jerusalem. Now, up in Antioch, Jews were seen very favorably. Why? Because they fought alongside the Romans on a critical battle out here that expanded the Roman Empire. And the, the Roman Empire was very grateful for the Jews fighting alongside, their, alongside them. And so they granted them land ownership, citizenship, as well as freedom. They could do whatever they want. Antioch was the center, uh, the, the outpost, and the seat of government for the Roman Empire in the, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire's, uh, Roman Empire's lands. Okay? So, 
Antioch, very, very cosmopolitan, very advanced, very diverse, very cultured, uh, and very, very important. So Antioch then was a great place to have all of the, where Christianity really flourished was in Antioch, okay? Many converts, uh, many um, activities going on with the, with the church. This is Paul's Christian home base. This is the home office, okay? Now, Paul and Barnabas then make this first trip. Barnabas is Paul's traveling companion. And they make this first trip then into Pamphylia and to Pisidia and in Cilicia, okay? And then, of course, Galatia, where we read the scripture from. And these three cities, these four cities in here, are actually the churches of Galatia, okay? So a lot happens there. A lot of things happen right there. Uh, in, in Antioch, then they get to, to uh, Pisidian, Iconian, and Lystra, where Paul heals a crippled man, by the way. And many people become Christians. But there are these dispersed Jews. Because remember, things got really difficult in Jerusalem. So Jews spread out around the Roman Empire because it was easier to go there than to be back home in Jerusalem. So they went all over the place. They got out of, of the, the danger zone. But guess what happens? When you are far away from your hometown, your home people, your own nationality, and particularly your Judaism, all you have is a synagogue. You don't have a temple in Jerusalem. All you have is that. Anything that comes along that seems to threaten your Judaism, you're going to attack. Easy to be a a Jew in Jerusalem. Not so easy when you're stuck in Iconium or Derby. So here comes Paul preaching, really at the time, a Jewish sect called Christianity. Okay? And these Jews become zealot for the authentic, real Judaism, and they persecute Paul, and that's why he ends up left for dead stoned outside of Iconium and Lystra. That's in Acts chapter 14. Paul keeps on moving all the way to Derby, where many disciples are made, and this is a fantastically successful, albeit dangerous, journey for Paul. The gospel is flourishing. Next missionary journey, the Purple Line. Okay, the purple line, um, I call this one pink. This looks more blue to me now that's on the screen. But here's what we have um, going on. It starts in Antioch again. This is actually the return uh, type journey thing going on here. So, and it goes to Tarsus, which is Paul's original hometown, right? And it then revisits all these churches and Paul and, and the rest of them are strengthening Silas by this time, are strengthening the uh, churches that were set up there. And then it makes this big leap to Troas, Alexandria. Troas, this big leap. And they don't go through Phrygia and Lydia and Pisidia down here in Lycia. Okay? They don't go there. That's interesting. Okay? They don't go there because... The Holy Spirit told them not to go there. And that's why they went north. And it's cool for you and me, bringing it back that the gospel came to us, because at Troas, right here, is where Paul receives his Macedonian call, as it's called. Come over to us. Come all the way over to Philippi. 
Come to us. The Holy Spirit is telling Paul, don't stop here at the edge of the sea. Go on across into Europe. Over to Greece. This is the very first time the gospel of Jesus makes its way, it makes its way into Europe. By the way, Troas is where uh, Paul picks up Luke, you know, the well-educated Greek doctor who writes his gospel that all of us have. And we all are thankful for that because, you know, Luke, that's the awesome, awesome one where we get all the good Christmas stories, right? All the Christmas texts for the most part. Matthew's got a pretty good thing going too, not to diss him too much. But nonetheless, Luke's got the corner when it comes to Christmas. So thank you, Luke. So back in Derby, though, if you run, want to run back over there just for other little tidbits and trivia... The, Paul picks up a new young convert named Timothy, who Paul uh, puts a lot of energy into in raising him up as a leader in the church. So Paul must feel like on this second journey that he's totally in his wheelhouse. I mean, things are going well. It is purposeful. It's dangerous, no doubt. Um, they avoid the most dangerous part where all the Jews are dispersed is here and they zoom on up to here and then they go on down here after the Macedonian call and they end up in Philippi and here's Berea, Thessalonica and then uh, Berea. You know, and you can hear the letters in the New Testament, Philippians, the Thessalonians, right, down to Corinthians and then it's gonna come back to Ephesians to here in Ephesus and then run on back down here and we'll get there in just a second. Okay. They make this journey. He goes on to Athens. By the way, very interesting to kind of speculate, and this is totally not in Scripture or anywhere else, but right here is Mount Olympus. And then Paul makes his way down to Athens, and he stands on the step of the Areopagus, the Areopagus, and debates with the Greek philosophers, quoting two Greek poets off the top of his head. You don't think Paul was smart? He knew his stuff. Oh, yeah, he also ends up over here in Corinth. Sin City, by the way. Sin City. It's the double seaport. Between this sea and that sea, this sea right here that goes into this sea and this sea right here, three and a half miles you drag boats over it for a huge fee. (laughs) Yeah, there were a thousand sacred prostitutes in that town. It was a busy seaport, let's just say. And uh, so, as a matter of fact, when you read the two letters to the Corinthians that we have in the New Testament, you can kind of tell, like, there's crazy stuff going on. Uh, it's a good idea, just to digress for a second. It's a good idea, brothers and sisters, that you don't sleep with your father's new mother. What? Yeah, that's a good idea. You know, Paul's like, well takes all kinds. So on to Ephesus, then on back, and he checks in with Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a messy place, remember? Where Paul, though, when he gets there, he gets all the way back down here to Jerusalem. And here, after all these double missionary journeys, he gets down here, right? Comes into Caesarea, the seaport, and gets down to Jerusalem. And there in Jerusalem, he is affirmed of his mission by the pillars in the church, Peter, James, and John. They say, and validate his calling, that he is called to the Gentiles. That's us. Now, Paul's last missionary journey here, the Green Line, once again, starts at home base, home office in Antioch. They go back again, visit the churches. But look here, right here in the hotbed, they take this dangerous journey through Laodicea, 
right? Um, famous for being one of the seven churches in Revelations in the last book of the Bible. And on over here to Ephesus. He spends three years in Ephesus. Ephesus is a critical city. As much as Antioch over here is a critical city for the Romans, Ephesus is critical for all of this entire region. It is the government center. Uh, Rome put a lot of time and effort into it. Um, You can see it's going to be down here where they control things from the seaport and so forth. And Ephesus has the temple of Artemis. You're like, okay, big deal, Artemis. Artemis, for the Roman gods, it's Diana. And um, so Diana's sitting over there. I'm trying not to look at her here about what I'm, about what I'm, because of what I'm about to say. Diana is the goddess of fertility and chastity and of the hunt and of vegetation and wild animals and all of that sort of thing. And it's a, um, a very spiritual city. And so Paul spends three years there and spends three years there and actually doing a lot of um, really successful ministry as well as a lot of challenges and so forth. Because, remember the Jews back here that stoned him and left him for dead? They just keep following him and hassling him. So his third journey um, is also critical. It's where the letters get written oftentimes on this whole thing. Uh, Corinthians is written, the book, the letters to the Corinthian church are written from Ephesus. Romans is written from Corinth. And uh, it it just goes on and on and on like that. So, while all those uh, original Jewish zealots, they keep chasing him down, he then finally departs. After this long journey, he finally departs back from Ephesus and makes his way to Jerusalem, here on the Green Line. Comes into Caesarea. Before he ever left, they said, Paul, do not go to Jerusalem. You will most likely be arrested as, you know, sedition against the Jewish state, if you want to call it that, or at least really the Jewish faith, since they don't have a state at that time. Well, you know, Paul, does he listen? No. So he departs for Jerusalem and with this warning. And sure enough, he shows up at the seaport in uh, Caesarea and they are waiting for him. They arrest him. He's also very popular. And so they smuggle him down to Jerusalem to charge him with all of his crimes. And then that brings us then to the last colored line, the orange line. This one right here. They take him back up to Caesarea and all the way here to Myra and then all the way through here. This is the second half of the book of Acts to Fairhavens, to Malta. I think we zoom out here on the map all the way up to Rome where Caesar is. Did you notice there's no return orange line this time? Scholars believe Paul was convinced that if he went and stood before Caesar and said, you are not the son of God, Jesus Christ is the son of God, some scholars think that Paul thought that Jesus would come back at that moment. 
if Paul thought, Paul thought, if I can get to the seat of the, of the Roman Empire, the most powerful place in the world, and denounce that one, Caesar, then Jesus will come. It's speculation. Keep in mind, Devifilius, Devifilius, I know you guys know it because you all speak Latin. Devifilius is on the, the backside of every Roman coin. Devifilius, divine son, son of God. Caesar's, since Caesar Augustus, yes, Caesar Augustus, the one who was Caesar during Jesus' birth, all called himself a deity, the son of God. And Paul was going to go tell that Devifilius, you are not a son of God. There is only one son of God. It is Jesus. Well, that would have been great had it been Caesar Augustus who was emperor some 50 years earlier, but it wasn't. Not now. Now, guess who's Caesar? Nero. Yes, that Nero. Nero, the one that you don't even want to name your dog after. Nero, crazy and wicked and debauched. I mean a hot mess of a human being. Nero hates Christians. He blames them for the burning of Rome, conveniently, which they didn't, but that was a good scapegoat. One legend then has it that Nero lit Paul on fire at a garden party like he was a human tiki torch. But he never comes back. So where's all this get us, get us, take us to? Well, the gospel goes on, everyone. The gospel came, the gospel came to you on its way to somebody else. You, you have a colored line on here too. You just didn't know it. But think about it. The journey goes on and on and then it comes to you and your one lifetime that God has put you here on this earth and you have a line that you've been walking and the little colored lines moving through your life on your journey as well. The gospel is nothing more than a story of faith. It is your story with all of its ups and downs and all of its wins and losses and headaches and troubles and joys and tears. The gospel is a story of forgiveness, your forgiveness, your acceptance, your relationship with a loving God through Jesus Christ. It is you at the foot of the cross who is proclaiming a gospel of love to other people. Now, we have to always think about this, you know, because primarily, if you think about it, Paul was fighting with the other Jews. He taught on the, at the, in the synagogue on the Sabbath. That's where he did all of his teaching. Paul was working, working over Jews that were dispersed through the Roman Empire. He started there. And then real Gentiles like you and me, we started becoming Christians too. So he had, a, he had a way of constructing his gospel that was in the context of who he was talking to. What's our context? What's your context? What, what age are we living in? We are living in a secular age. We are living in a post-Christian age. It does not do much good to sit around and reminisce about the good old days. In 1890, when everyone was a Christian in America... Like, that's a myth, too. 
It's not going to do us any good. We live in a day and age where everyone values authenticity. You can be as authentic as you want and you make up your own religion. We are a material people we are, and we're living in a material world. It's just about money. We lack depth and meaning and transcendence, just to use the 10 cent word. In other words, our world lacks a soul. Because this, these days, everything is spiritual, and therefore nothing spiritual. Spiritual can be, I'm raking leaves. I'm petting my dog. My toes are in the ocean, and that's all I need. And you're like, that's really sweet. That's it? That's, that's it? You're just doing the great Bertrand Russell, existentialist Bertrand Russell, who said, when you die, you rot. Your transcendence is that you're on a fertilizer plan? That's it? Watch all the TV shows, all these dramas that we watch, and that's all they're selling. Make up your own, you know, choose your own destiny. What's our context need? What's the little dotted line that all of us are following that we're making up? Who are we? What's the context for the gospel of, of, faith, of forgiveness and reconciliation and love that repairs the world? I propose that instead of being salesmen and saleswomen, for instead of being sales agents, selling some sort of package, what we need are pilgrims. You and I, need to act more like pilgrims. And I'm not talking about like Thanksgiving pilgrims, you know, with blunderbust and little buckled hats and funny shoes and those kind of white things on their legs, you know, and pumpkins and turkeys and everybody's named Ezekiel and Elizabeth. I'm not talking like that. I'm talking like holy pilgrims. People who are on a pilgrimage making their way. We need pilgrims in our day because the world lacks a soul. They lack somebody who can interpret the world around them with, with the eyes of transcendence, with meaning. Pilgrims are on a journey with their eyes wide open. Pilgrims travel light. They're not attached to many material things. Pilgrims travel slow. Most of the time they travel in silence because they just listen to other people. Pilgrims notice everything. They're quiet enough and slow enough to listen to other people's stories. They don't steal other people's conversations and interrupt because they know they've been on a long little colored journey of joys and tears and that somebody else's story is so important and that simply to remain, remain quiet and listen is a great act of love pilgrims may not be hip they may not be an influencer but they care. And pilgrims know they're living in a story and that they're on a journey. I once stood on the bank of my own Jordan River. I was 16. I had been raised in the church and I knew my Bible. I knew all about Jesus and his blood and the cross and I'd been baptized and I could quote scriptures. But I lived in two worlds, one world of parting and the other world a spiritual world. Still parting like it was 1976, I asked for a pocket New Testament and a guitar for Christmas from my fundamentalist mother. 
Three weeks later, I fell on my knees in my bedroom and I simply prayed, God help me. And I crossed my Jordan. Somehow I knew I was serious and somehow I knew God was serious about me. All the pretending, all the partying, all the distractions, no regrets. I moved on into a promised land. Of course, life moved on and it wasn't perfect after that. Three years later, my dad has a stroke, paralyzed on his left side, took away most of his mind. My mother at the same time has severe diabetes and now has to care for my paralyzed dad. I knew my folks as invalids longer than I knew them as healthy. But my relationship with God grew deeper and stronger. And I began to learn to wait for rain from heaven because hardship makes pilgrims if you're paying attention. That was my Jordan River. What's your Jordan River? Are you standing at the bank of a Jordan River waiting to cross over? Have you been this long little line, colored line? Will it continue through your Jordan River and onward with God with you as a pilgrim? Watching, slow, silent, loving, forgiving. I think our world needs pilgrims. Pilgrims who traveled with Paul and Silas and Priscilla and Aquila, Luke and Timothy. And then there's Paige and Jordan, Anthony, Trissa and Aiden, Jody and Laurie, Steve, Marta, Garrett. Jordan crossers. The psalmist says, Blessed are those whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. And as they pass through the valley of tears, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools, and they go from strength to strength until each appears before God in Zion. Amen.